Welcome in. It is the Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast brought to you by The Athletic. He is Jay Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer as we discuss the latest happenings with the Houston Astros. Today is going to be a little bit different. We're going to take a a stroll down memory lane and we're going to do a, a remembrance of former Astro Jimmy Wynn, who passed away on Thursday. He's a member of the Astros Hall of Fame, the Toy Cannon. We're going to be joined by Kevin Eschenfelder, a friend of both Jake and I's, who obviously you guys see on AT&T Sportsnet Southwest uh, during, before, and after every single Astros games to remember Jimmy Wynn. Uh, obviously, we'll, we'll kind of start with what's happening uh, with us. As it is now uh, week number three of quarantine. Jake, how are you? I'm doing okay, relatively uh, speaking. Um, you know, grateful to be healthy. So, um, you know, that's that's what matters most right now. Um, how are you hanging in, Jake? I'm hanging in okay. I'm basically trying to, you know, watch different movies that I need to catch up on, watching TV series, completing some of them, starting uh, new ones, but trying to create some sort of routine uh, for myself uh, on a daily basis at this point. Uh, in a minute here, we're going to bring on uh, Kevin Eschenfelder. Um, you know, Mike and I, not, neither of us knew um, Jimmy Wynn, who sadly died uh, late last week on, on Thursday. Uh, Kevin knew him well, um, you know, followed his career closely as a player growing up in Houston and then worked with him on the Astros pre and post game shows. So we, we wanted to get Kevin in, Kevin's insight into Jimmy, both Jimmy Wynn, the player, and Jimmy win the man. Um, and then at, at how this is going to work, I think at the end, uh, Mike and I are also going to do a few minutes on, uh, after we let Kevin go, on the MLB, MLBPA deal that was struck late last week about how to deal with the uh, service time issues stemming from this shutdown, uh, the pay issues and all, and the draft and international uh, signing period and all that stuff. So, um, if, if you're interested in that, which is kind of a follow-up from what we talked about in the last episode on Thursday, um, stay tuned for that uh, after the interview with Kevin. We are joined now by AT&T Sportsnet South, Southwest's Kevin Eschenfelder, a lifelong Houstonian who grew up idolizing Jimmy Wynn, the player, and later bonded with him personally during their shared years working on the Astros pre- and post-game shows. Kevin, Mike, and I are very sorry uh, for your loss, and we're grateful here that you are Willing to share some time with us today to remember Jimmy Wynn. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, and it's uh, it's all you know, all of Astro fandom loss. Uh, that's for sure. But thank you. Yeah, he's uh, a good guy, and uh, you know, he was one of those guys that uh, that always amazed me, Jake. That 40 years after he had ever played here, the line would be around the corner at Minute Maid Park for people to get his autograph. He was he was a very popular guy, and a lot of that had to do with you know the person he was more so than the player he was. So I think you have a really unique perspective on him, uh, given the kind of the various capacities in which he came into you came into contact with him throughout your life and throughout his life. Um, you know, like the they, the common saying they say like never meet your heroes, um, but it sounds like Jimmy Wynn was very much uh, an exception to that line of thinking, given your your friendship with him. Is that accurate? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and, and I have thought of that saying many times whenever I was thinking about him over the last uh, few days but yeah that's that's for sure and and i'm you know he was he was a player he was just on that cusp of me being able to 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 know the game i was you know probably 
seven or eight years old when he was really in his prime as an Astro. So, you know, it's a little, that's a little young, but I certainly remember him. It's not like I was, you got to remember too, back in those days, if you wanted to see the game, you went to the game. There was no, the games weren't on TV right. like they are now. <laughs> uh, you know, you got, you got uh, one, you got two games and they were both on Saturday afternoon and it was usually the Cincinnati Reds or the Dodgers or the Mets or the Yankees or the Red Sox. So that's just the way it worked out back then. But, uh, I think uh, just his diminutive size, the fact that he was kind of, he was a, a little bit like everybody except uh, he, he was a uh, ordinary looking man that could do extraordinary things with a baseball bat. Kevin, what what when you were growing up in the '60s and the early '70s, what about his game as a budding sports fan captivated you about Jimmy Wynn? Uh, you know, Mike, he was. Uh, I just go back and look at the numbers, and I hear, and, and, I'm, and I'm telling you guys, it was more about hearing the stories that my cousin, my older, older family members, whether it was a cousin or something like that, could tell the story. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit, like I said, he was a little bit before my time in the sense that uh, of the really appreciating what he was able to do, but he, he just had tremendous power for a man that size, and that was he was a center fielder that could range, had a good, had great range, and uh, but he had unbelievable power uh for that size and it wasn't just that he hit home runs it was he hit long home runs though everybody's seen the famous home run in crosley field you know he's from cincinnati but hit it on the expressway and uh you know out of the stadium onto the onto the freeway and uh that was probably the biggest thing that stood out and let's face it he had one of the all-time great nicknames that you'll ever hear Mm -hmm. uh, in the toy cannon did you ever ask him about that in, in your years getting to know him and, and working with him? Did you ever ask him about that famous uh, Cincinnati home run? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, he was – that was the thing. He was very humble uh, in a sense that he didn't – you know, it wasn't – he just uh, – yeah, oh, yeah, I, I got that one. Yeah, I hit that one on the screws or something like that. He would, It wasn't any – you know, there was no – no real great story to it. It was just kind of like that's what I did what I did. And I just caught mm-hmm. me one right there, and that was uh, that was kind of the mentality they had. Is uh, the toy cannon? Th- that's a great nickname, obviously, as Jake mentioned a minute ago or so. Kevin, uh, I know in reading about Jimmy Win over the weekend, it- it's something that he had kind of a love hate relationship with. That initially he wasn't really a huge fan of it, and then eventually he kind of embraced it as he got on later into life. Did you talk to him specifically about the nickname? No, not really. Just in the sense that I knew it was, a, I think it was a Houston Post writer that, that came up with it. And uh, he, he never, I never had heard that he didn't like it. I know you said he had a love hate relationship with it. I know for the most part, it was, uh, it was something that he, he really kind of embraced. Uh, he was so good with fans, and it was kind of that, I think that was, it, it all kind of went together. I know this sounds crazy, but it sounds like you know, he had a he had a great name too. I mean, Jimmy Wynn, you know, Willie Mays. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah, it kind of rolls off your tongue, and then and then you put the the great nickname, the Toy Cannon, there together. And I remember as a as a little kid, you'd go and you'd, you'd look up in the yellow section at the Astrodome, which was <laughs> seemed like a mile from home plate, and you could see the you could see the black cannon painted on the the yellow seat. There was one for. One for him that he had hit a ball up there, and then Doug Rader had hit a ball up there, and there was so there was two chairs, and one had a rooster painted on it for Doug Rader where it landed, and uh, there was a, a black cannon painted up on that yellow yellow seat up and way up at the top of of the Astrodome. It's interesting too. He seems to be, 
you know, I, I never saw him play, obviously. Uh, Mike didn't either. Um, I never, unfortunately, got to interview him or meet him. Um, but just, like, doing a lot of reading about him in the last four or five days, um, you know, it, it seems like, in sort, similar to Jeff Bagwell in some respects, like, his performance has become even more appreciated as statistics have become more advanced and, and advanced stats have become more mainstream because power hitter who played in the Astrodome, um, kind of on the lower side of the batting averages, but higher walk totals and on base percentages, which is obviously the stuff we all love now. Um, and now that we can like adjust for ballpark factors, it's easier to put in context, but like all told in his career, 129 OPS plus, which means he was his on-base plus slugging percentage was 29% better than the league average, um, and he did it while playing a, a premium up-the-middle position. So I don't know. I just found that interesting that he's kind of like one of those guys who's um, – it seems like we've gotten a better perspective of, of how good he really was even after his career. Well, I think about, two in uh, 67, you know, he set a club record, 37 home runs. I think Harmon Killebrew and maybe Harmon – I think it may have been he and Frank Robinson that led – major league baseball with uh 44 so he was seven off of that but of those 37 he had 22 on the road he had 15 at the astrodome and that was in the days in which it was just a mammoth shot to get it into because you had to hit it into the seats to uh mm-hmm. for it to be a home run and yeah you you do adjust that and there's a greater appreciation for what he does and you also take into consideration the era in which that was that was 1967 so uh, you're what? Is it still a year, two years before? You know they 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 lowered the mound, so you were you were doing that against the the Sandy Koufaxes and Don Drysdale's and you know uh, uh, Bob Gibson's of the world. I mean, I know there's great pitchers now too, but uh, but that was I think that adds to it more. It was more of an era of pitching that he was doing that in. Mm-hmm. Kevin, for our younger audience, if you can think of you know maybe one or two modern day players like if you have to if you look at major league baseball in in 2019 2020 and you think about jimmy Wynn, what's a comparable player to a guy who's that small but has that kind of power at the plate uh man that's a good question because there's you know altuve's got good uh, good power but altuve is not built as i mean jimmy was jimmy was pretty muscular he was a small guy but he was pretty muscular uh, yeah. Kirby Puckett was kind of a guy who didn't have that tremendous power, but, uh, you know, kind of a similar Puckett. It's, it's a, that's a tough question, Mike, but I would say somewhere, somewhere maybe in between those two, uh, just off the top of my head without really thinking about it. But, you know, he was a, he, he was a great athlete that, that could go get it in center field. Uh, he had an arm and he had enough arm to play right. And, uh, and obviously, you know, the numbers spoke for themselves. The, the strikeout numbers, how low they were, even when he led the league in strikeouts one year, still the, it's it's amazing how the game has changed. You know, it's, it wasn't the, the, you know, swing from the back foot era <laughs> back, like it is today. One thing that always fascinates me when you look at a player that, you know, they get traded and looking back what the backstory was. So when Jimmy Wynn traded from the Astros to the Dodgers uh, after the 73 season, I want to go into that a little bit. Why did that happen? And what was the reaction in Houston after 11 seasons? He's a core guy here in Houston. What's the backstory and the reaction to that trade? That was a time in which... Uh, it was it was Claude Osteen, I believe, is who came this way. And Claude Osteen was a was a good pitcher at the time. Uh, 
course, Jimmy went on to win to uh, go. I think he was an All Star twice as a Dodger, so it wasn't like he was at the end of his rope, or you know, he he still had a lot left in the tank. But you know, I, I don't. It's that was again, Mike. That was that was probably a little bit before as far as a reaction is concerned. But I do know at the time the era of Astros baseball was that that they put a lot of emphasis into the Astrodome and not so much into the team. And uh, I think that was something that we were people in Houston were kind of used to. Remember, this is also the franchise that traded Joe Morgan, so uh, who went on to you know, obviously do. Uh, have a Hall of Fame career as a Cincinnati Red right right in front of them. So I think it was just a matter, probably more of a mentality of here we go again type of a, a situation. How did the the broadcast stint, um, first of all, how many years did he, did he broadcast with you? And how, how did that come about originally, if you recall? Well, he was working for the team. Uh, he was always a community uh, relations. Not, yeah. He'd go out and work in the community and, and do things like that for the ball club. So he stayed employed with the team. He always lived in Houston. He was from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. always lived here. And uh, even after he left and went on to the uh, to the Dodgers and Yankees, Milwaukee Brewers for a short period at the end of his career, always kept his home here. And uh, he went to work for the team, working in the community, that type of uh, that type of a job. And uh, there was just the thought that I think somebody came up with it for about four years. He would come on on Sundays. Uh, he would be our Sunday analyst, and he would come on with me, and, and we would always have a good time. And uh, it, it just the popularity was was amazing to me when I really started. This was in the early 2000s, and he did it, like I said, for about four straight seasons. But, you know, he was, he was always funny. He always had a good smile on his face. You know, he wasn't going to break down some of the things that, that you might see in the more modern type of analytical context, mm-hmm. but uh, but he was still a very popular popular guy. People at home might not realize that when you guys do these pre and post game shows, you're you're generally also watching the entire game in between together, um, and, and you, that gives obviously three hours to to chat with these people and get to know them on a daily basis, or in his case, on a Sunday basis. Um, you know, what was it like? I mean, presuming you guys watched the games together during those years, like what was it like getting to watch the game and, and hear him get to know him and, and hear him talk about the game, you know, off air? He was, uh, he was always kind of uh, surprised at the way the game is played today. From the st- I, I, I got that, you know, just the what is he doing type of a mentality in a, in a, <laughs> in a funny way. Uh, you know, why is this guy playing here? He's, this guy's going to do this. And, and, yeah, he, he was a, a very he was very astute when it came to the game. That was that's really one of the my favorite things about this job is that I do sit whether it was for several years with Steve Sparks or Art Howe and now you know Mike Stanton, but but Jimmy back in those days to be able to sit during the game and listen to them talk about the game. Uh, it's that to me that's that's really I mean that's what makes this what makes my job so much fun. And I, that I've learned more baseball from those, from the time during the game, uh, that three hours, like you said, but he was, you know, it, it wasn't anything, like I said, overly analytical in the sense that we see the game now, but it was certainly refreshing. And, and it was great. The, the one day a week to have him come out and kind of take it from a, an old school perspective, which was a lot of fun. 
Kevin, you mentioned a few minutes ago the popularity of Jimmy Wynn, even in the last decade or so when he's doing autographs, the line is wrapped around the corner. What do you think was the reason? What, what, is, what, what is it about Jimmy Wynn that created that lasting popularity in the Astros fan base that's still connected to the modern day? That is a great question, Mike. And, and I would joke with him about that. And I wrote a little tribute to him and I said, you know, in a minute, I said, you hadn't played here, you know, you hadn't played here in 40 years and these people still love you. And he just looked at me and grinned and he kind of shrugged his shoulders like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. But he, I, I think it goes back to a couple of things. Like I said, uh, he was, he was built like everybody else. He was not a big guy. I mean, he, he was, a, they, they listed him at five, nine. When I, in my time with Jimmy, he was probably five, seven. And uh, so I, I think that adds to it. Like I said, go back to the name. I think it's a great name, but there was just a, he, he was, he was, you know, he'd smile at people. He took the time. It wasn't like he wouldn't look up and, you know, just, just, you know, shove a piece of paper underneath him and him sign it. He'd look at the kids and he'd joke with them, tell them to turn their baseball cap around, you know, that kind of stuff <laughs> if they had their hat on backwards. And uh, it was just a personable guy. He was just a good human being. And I think uh, at the end of the day, that's, that goes a lot further than than what your statistical numbers are going to uh, going to to tell or going to influence people. I think it's going to be about being approachable and, and just being. And, and when I say approachable, I don't mean in what you say. I mean in how you look, how you act, what your body language is like. And I think that was him. He was just uh, he was just kind of a regular guy walking around when it made park, and uh, but everybody loved him. In the years since he was working with you directly as a broadcaster. Obviously, he was still around. He was a community outreach, uh, worked in community outreach for the Astros. What, w- what was your relationship like the last few years? And, and um, if you don't mind talking about the last last uh, few times you guys got to uh, spend time together. Uh, he, you know, about 20 years ago, uh, uh, he had had some problems with, uh, I, I think it, uh, I think it was his sciatic. And uh, so he was a big, avid golfer. And uh, he, I think he had had uh, some procedures that did not go right. So he really started having trouble with, with one of his legs. And uh, so he didn't move around as well anymore. Whenever he and I worked together, he was about to start walking with a cane. And, you know, he, he didn't move great. And that's the thing about working at a ballpark, as you guys know, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of moving. It's a lot of having to walk. You know, we mm-hmm. we walk from the press box out to the outfield to our set, you know, that type of yep. stuff. And so that made it more difficult. Uh, you know, later on, by the time we were done, he was walking with a cane. And then, you know, and then that's been years ago. But to, to tell you about our relationship, I would call Jimmy on a Sunday morning on my way to the ballpark. That's kind of something I did. And he'd want to talk about the Rockets or, you know, <laughs> you know it wasn't just like we were sitting there talking about, you know, what Jose Altuve was doing at the plate that week. I mean, we would talk about all kinds of stuff. And, and so that was always something. He, he was one of the, he's probably the last person I've ever called on a house phone. So he would just, <laughs> oh, you call me on this phone. You know, so I would call him on his, I'd call him on his house phone. And Marie, his wife Marie would answer the phone. And, you know, you could, hold on, you just the old school setting the phone. You guys probably don't even know what this sounds like. Setting the phone down and you could hear calling him in the background. And, uh, you know, we would we talk for 15 minutes on the way to the ballpark, but I tried to do that a couple times a month on on Sunday. So we stayed in touch and uh, always saw him at the ballpark when he was there. Always made it a point to find him. But 
as as things got worse and things digressed, he he, he struggled more and more. And uh, last time I saw him was at the Hall of Fame in August. Was at the Hall of Fame induction, and I got a chance to talk to him. And uh, you know, he he had a hard time communicating at that point. Mm. And so I knew I knew things weren't good. But uh, you know, he's uh, he. I know now he he can go back and do the things that uh, he was. You know, he was he used to be able to do. Out, hit the golf ball three hundred yards and things like that. So uh, that's that. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to be that way, and, and I know he's in a better place. It it struck me on on the day uh, I believe it was Thursday when the news broke how um, just the outpouring on Twitter from the broadcasters like Julia Morales yourself like that was not an angle I really <clears throat> um, considered uh, at first, but it just really I think shows you um, how really everyone this guy worked with. Loved him, um, and and how good of a person it sounds like he was. So we really, uh, Kevin, we really appreciate you sharing your memories and and uh, of working with with Jimmy, and also your insight of following his career when you were a young sports craze, first or second grader in in Houston. Um, and uh, yeah, hope hope you're you're staying safe and and, and hanging in there during this uh, this strange time. For sure, guys. Y'all stay safe. Thanks for having me. Great stuff with Kevin Eschenfelder of AT&T Sportsnet Southwest remembering the great Jimmy Wynn. One other thing Jake and I wanted to talk about in this episode, some big news that came down also on Thursday. The deal that came down between the MLB, between Major League Baseball and the union, the MLBPA, as far as just basically coming to an agreement on what's going to happen moving forward here, the parameters for when and if a season is going to happen for Major League Baseball with the global pandemic with the coronavirus. Also, what considerations are going to be in place if there is no season whatsoever? And I'll just kind of start right there because the owners, I think, made a made a concession, a big one, that if there is no season, that is going to mean that the players are going to get the same service time they got in 2019. So for, for an Astros example, that means if there is no season, God forbid in 2020, that means George Springer is going to be a free agent in the next offseason. Jake, what do you make of the owners conceding on the service time? Yeah, I mean, I think if they hadn't, it would have been seen as pretty tone deaf right now, given everything going on in the country and the in the world. Um so I wasn't. I guess I wasn't too surprised that they did that. And the reports had surfaced a few days earlier that they were they were going to. Um, you know, it was interesting to go to dig into it, though. I mean, like all the byproducts of it. Say, God forbid, the season is canceled, then like the Dodgers just traded for Mookie Betts and won't get him any games out of it. Obviously, they could re-sign him like anyone else, but. Um, you know, there's that example. There's Trevor Bauer with the Reds. There's and then there's the the players like George Springer and Michael Brantley and Yuli Gurriel who are just with their current teams and and their their ten years with those teams would suddenly end uh, unless they signed a new contract. So um, it's you know the deal I think it makes sense and it's good that the parties you know put aside their differences in general and and got to an agreement, but. Um, yeah, it, it just dissecting it is, is interesting. Jake, I think the negotiation part of this is really fascinating because ultimately 
what the owners did makes a lot of sense from the perspective of, I, I do think the service time was a big concession for them because in a case of a George Springer or a JT Real Muto or a Marcus Stroman, somebody like that, and with the Dodgers, Mookie Betts, if there's no season, the Dodgers are not going to have any games of Mookie Betts in 2020. And if they want to keep him, they're going to have to re-sign him and pay him a fortune. But it makes sense for the owners because they limit themselves on the downside of this because as part of the deal, the owners are advancing the players $170 million to cover basically April and May, and that 170 is going to be divided up among the 40-man rosters of these 30 Major League Baseball teams. And as part of the deal, the players have specifically agreed not to sue for their 2020 salaries. And I just think it makes sense, ultimately, from an owner's standpoint, that's where the negotiation came down. If the season is shortened, as I think it's, it's obviously likely to be, then it's a simple deal. It's going to be prorated service time as far as 2020 goes, but the owners basically trade the service time if there is no season whatsoever with limiting their downside as far as the $4 billion of payroll that goes out every single year in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and like I said, I think it's hard to it's a hard time to negotiate and hold a hard line on anything right now because you'd be seen as, as um, you know, bickering over things that don't matter relative to uh, this global health pandemic that we're, we're dealing with right now. So um, it's good that they came to an agreement. Um, I think it was, I was, you know, because I'm a nerd, I looked into like the service time stuff a little bit deeper. And I, I wrote about this in a story that, that published on Friday, but um, you know, if there is no season, uh, this is going to have a big impact on um, young players who have, either debuted last year or uh, were maybe debuted in 2018 or we're going to debut this year. Um, and so, for example, if there's no season, and obviously this is all, you know, small potatoes compared to all the life stuff going on, but we're, we're talking about baseball here um, on a baseball podcast, Kyle Tucker, uh, the Astros young outfielder, um, you know, by the deal, he would only get 28 days of service time in a canceled season this year, whereas he was going to get a f- likely a full year if, if the season had been played. That that would push his free agency back a year down the road, uh, and the same goes for really a lot a ton of young players who who got what around 85 or fewer days of service last year. So Jose Arquidi, Brian Abreu. Um, guys who might have debuted this year, like Christian Javier, Forrest Whitley, um, Abraham Toro, who debuted last year, like that that tier, that bracket of player around baseball um, would be faced with that you know extra year before free agency uh, down the road. And obviously, you, you can't please everyone with these deals, but uh, I just thought it was an interesting uh, byproduct of it um, that won't be realized for for a long time if if the season is canceled. Another component to this, Jake, about this deal is the Major League Baseball draft. So as part of the deal the the league and the union came to, the draft can be as few as five rounds. That's going to be up to Rob Manfred. It's going to be kind of up to you know his discretion, what he ultimately decides in the next uh, few months. And so the draft can be five rounds. I'll be honest with you, reading some of this stuff with, with the draft, I don't have a great sense for how this is going to affect the Astros who are without their first two picks in the upcoming draft as a result of the sign-stealing scandal. I don't know if it's good for them. I don't know if it's bad. 
There's been a ton written about this. One big thing is that after the draft happens, so whether it's five rounds, 10 rounds, whatever the situation is going to be, in order to sign the quote-unquote undrafted free agents, there's a limit of $20,000 on each bonus after that draft, which is a pretty low amount of money when you think about the amount of money these prospects usually get. And I just think this element of this is going to be fascinating, how this affects the Astros and how it affects the league in general with the changes to the draft. Yeah, it is a it is rough for those those amateur players. Um, no, you know, there's no doubt about that. I think we do have to be careful of assuming it's going to be a five round draft. I think I feel like a lot of people have. Um, that's the minimum it could be. You know, a lot of people around the game are holding out hope that it's at least going to be at least ten. Um, but we don't know for sure what it's going to be. It's it's five is just the minimum. Um, yeah, in terms of the Astros, I think it's you know no matter what they have the same uh, percentage of picks. You know, like they if it's a five round draft, they have four picks. If it's a ten round draft, they have nine picks. Um, so you know that. I think I don't know. I don't think it helps or hurts them. I think it it just is what it is. For you know, the picks are all all the same. There's just fewer of fewer rounds. Um, you know, and there's in their case because of the punishment for the sign stealing scandal, they're still operating with a smaller bonus pool, which is really the the biggest penalty of of the draft component of it. Um, but yeah, in terms of the players, that's a you know think about those players who have been working towards this draft class for years and years. That's you know, if it is five rounds, I mean, you're, you're, and then on, you know, a big, big part of it also is the maximum uh, signing bonus for undrafted free agents is going to be only 20,000, which is extremely low relatively. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, you, you think because, you know, the, these teams have been scouting these players for years and years. They know who like the first round should be or, or like at least, they, they probably have like 50 names who, who they could slot into those 30 first round picks. But, um, you know, the, the college players, they have a lot more data and information on than the high school players. So it could lead to a more forever for however many rounds it is a more college heavy draft than usual. It definitely seems like it will be more college-heavy than usual because that is, as you mentioned, kind of the safer approach. And I'm also fascinated, Jake, by what the players are thinking about. Like, let's say you are a prospect, whether you're, let's say, like, you're a high school player. Do you think about entering early in the 2020 MLB draft whenever it happens, depending on how many rounds it is, because you're in a unique spot where, yeah, $20,000 isn't that much when you think about how these guys normally, how much they normally get, but it's an unprecedented situation where if you aren't drafted and you don't meet that cutoff, you do have the advantage of being able to essentially select whatever team you want to play for, assuming there's obviously interest by that team. And so you can, if you have a favorite team growing up, I mean, that sounds, you know, kind of silly, but if you think about some of the big name teams or some of the teams in baseball who are known for really good player developmental systems, that might incentivize you to enter this MLB draft. And so I'm very curious what's going to happen with those high school players and then maybe also the college juniors as far as if they want to stay in college or if they want to enter the draft as well. I think which prospects declare or not is going to be very interesting with this change of rules. Yeah, I think you would, I, I probably would guess that not many um, of the 
top, you know, highly touted prospects would sign a $20,000 signing bonus. That's giving up a lot of potential earnings. Um, if you were to go back into the draft in the future, especially if you're a high school kid, I mean, most of the, the really, really highly touted high school players, if, if there's an indic- any indication they might sign, go in the first five rounds anyway. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I th- that part of the whole thing surprised me because, you know, with that, say you, there wasn't the, there was a higher limit or no limit on the undrafted free agent spending. Obviously, there would be some limit because there's a limit for everything. But um, you would think it would set up for like a really interesting period of like undrafted free agency signings. But limiting it to twenty thousand is gonna. I feel like just it's it's gonna be a lot of like the the college seniors you know, who would have been late round picks uh, in a 40 round draft. So, um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see um, where it leads and also what it means for, you know, the whole, you know, ongoing debate before the pandemic about, you know, minor league contraction and and they were trying to shorten the draft before this. So, you know, will we ever see another 40 round draft, I think is a is a real question. Yeah, Jake, I do think that that's going to be a real question. And that's kind of the that's kind of the background of all this, that it seems as though the owners are using this opportunity to kind of impose what they want to have happen with the draft and with young players over the long term. For whatever reason, they feel as though there's too much being spent on younger players, even though if you kind of look at the history of this, uh, the amount of money that's spent on draft picks compared to what you ultimately get, they usually get a positive ROI on this. And one thing people have speculated uh, based on this deal, do you think there's going to be an international draft? Yeah, I think that's been in speculation for a long time, is that that's what baseball wants eventually uh, in the next CBA. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. But yeah, the international period in this deal that was struck Friday uh, or Thursday and, and ratified Friday can be pushed back to from July 2nd to January at the latest. So that's that's a big difference too and, and really kind of uh, resets the, the timetable for how these international periods, which traditionally are July 2nd to June 15th, how they, how they function. Now, before we close things out, people are always looking for uh, different things to read, especially during these quiet times in uh, the quarantine. We obviously hope you're doing well. Jake, you have a new article that I admit I've saved. I've yet to read it yet, but I'm going to over the course of this week. So you rank the 13 no-hitters in the history of the Astros. Can you kind of tell us about the process that you use to rank those no-hitters? Well, like with our Houston Hall of Fame last week, I'm sure my logic was twisted and people will, will tell me as such. I hope they do. Um, yeah, I, I was struck last, I mean, really all last week and into the weekend, there's a lot of classic games being shown and a lot of them are no hitters. So naturally so. So I got watching the, you know, seeing the Verlander no hitter from Toronto last September being aired again, got me thinking like, where does that stack up in Astros history? And then that led me down this rabbit hole of, ranking all 13 no hitters. Uh, it was a really fun exercise. Um, you know, I, I didn't, uh, hadn't seen or haven't seen a lot of them. So it was, it was interesting to dive back in and, you know, I kind of ranked them most on historical significance, um, how impressive the given performance was. Obviously every no hitter is good and impressive, but you know, sometimes a guy walks six guys or 
Sometimes there's an unearned run scored. Uh, in one case, the Astros lost. Um, so I think those get dinged. Um, you know, generally combined no hitters aren't this aren't as cool as individual no hitters. But in the Astros case, they had a six person no hitter, and that's uniquely cool. So uh, it was you know you could poke holes in all of my rankings for sure. But um, you know I think it was it was a fun exercise, and I hope people enjoy reading it. He is Jay Kaplan. Make sure you check out the story. Make sure you check out all the great stuff on The Athletic right now, including a great story that was written by one of my favorite columnists, Joe Postnanski, a tribute of Jimmy Wynn. Also, all the latest on the new deal between the players and the union. Keith Law wrote about it. Uh, Jake wrote about it. Just a a ton of different writing about how that new deal is going to impact Major League Baseball uh, moving forward here. So make sure you check that out. We're obviously with you twice a week dropping Mondays and Thursdays. He is Jay Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer. This is the Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast by The Athletic.